This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Jason Rubenstein. Rabbi Rubenstein is the Jewish chaplain at Yale University. He grew up in a reform synagogue in Washington, D.C., and studied at an Orthodox yeshiva in northern Israel before receiving his rabbinic ordination from the conservative Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. He spent a decade teaching at the Hadar Institute, where he did some magnificent work before coming to Yale University. And I will recommend that everyone go to Mahon Hadar's website and see Jason's lecture on miracles. So Jason, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Mark, it's wonderful to be here. Please tell us about your chosen passage today and uh, why it's meaningful to you. Great. So I'm going to tell it. It's a story, as all of the best rabbinic texts are. And so I'll, and the story has two layers. It's a metaphor or a parable. So it's a literary text, and then it's a theological and a human text. The story goes like this. It was a woman, she fell in love with a charming, wealthy, up-and-coming young man. They did beautiful, exciting courtship, exchanging letters that overflowed with poetry and promise, got married. Things were just beyond what they had imagined. And then, inexplicably, he disappeared for days after the marriage. I don't know how long they've been married. It's not specified. So he didn't leave her at the altar. It wasn't one of those stories. It's not leaving her at the altar. No, it's uh, they've settled into their home. They've made a couple mortgage payments. You know, maybe she left a job to move to be near him. Something on that kind of scale of time, I imagine. And then he's gone one morning. And then he's gone for, he doesn't answer his phone for a few days, a few weeks. And then it's getting to be a few years, you know, maybe, maybe a decade or more. Does she know he's alive? We don't know. We just know he's not there. You know, there, there's no, there's no internet. There's no Interpol. There's no, there's none of that. And her friends will periodically approach her and say, look, we know you loved him. He might have even loved you, but he's gone. And you only got one life. And it really looks like he's not coming back. And you deserve something better than being alone and childless. And she is, and she cries, right? She despairs and she goes home and opens up the chest in which she keeps the letters that they exchanged when they were courting. And she reads them. Her, her ability to love and hope is restored through those memories. And this happens for years and years. And then finally, and inexplicably, he comes back. And the first thing he says to her is, I can't believe you waited for me. Is this the Ulysses story? This sounds exactly like the Ulysses story. Yes. So fascinatingly, she is clearly foil for the Ulysses story. And uh, David Stern, who's now at Harvard, he's a Jewish studies professor, cites someone else in his book, Midrash and Theory, is making the claim that this woman that I've been telling the story, but we're not quite done with, is the only depiction from classical antiquity of a woman reading, right? The contrast with Ulysses' stories couldn't be stronger, right? Instead of doing classic women's work of weaving to keep herself faithful, she reads, right? The gender bending is, is quite delightful. And she says to him, he says, I can't believe you waited. And she says, were it not for those letters that I kept, I would have left you a long time ago. 
So now we translate that metaphor. So too, the Jewish people and God, God brought us out of Egypt, fed us the manna in the desert, protected us from Amalek, promised us a peaceful, hopeful existence of dignity. Sinai was the wedding. And for a while, it continued. Came into the land, you know, 40 years. That was complicated, but some of the early stages of marriage are complicated. Came into the land, and then God disappeared. This is Jewish history, enters history of antiquity. But God doesn't promise us an easy time. In fact, in Deuteronomy, there are all kinds of projections and, in fact, prophecies about all the bad things that are going to happen, some because of our own doing. Exactly. And I think this is critically the person who makes this point, I think, better than anyone else is Michael Walzer in the latter part of Exodus and Revolutionary. A great book, by the way. Great, great book. I don't know if it's great as an argument that modern liberatory politics come from the book of Exodus, but it's great as a reading of the book of Exodus. Um, Walzer points out in a really trenchant critique of messianism, right, that the, the bar, the hope, the dream of Deuteronomy, the dream of Exodus, the dream of the Torah, Moses' dream that he doesn't get to live, is, for example, there's that whole section about who's going to get draft exemptions when you go to war, right? You're going to go to war, and he says, right, newlyweds and people who just built homes. The premise of that is that there are going to be wars, and you won't have enough draft exemptions to go around. That's the dream, right? Then the next verse basically says, make sure you don't have corrupt judges. And all throughout Deuteronomy, you, you see you're exactly right. There's no notion there will be peace. It's you'll be able to vanquish your enemies, implying there will be enemies. Right. And you'll also have internal conflicts. You'll need to go to judges. And there will be judges on the tank. And there's a promise of control, controlling, as it were, our own destiny. Right. Deuteronomy holds out the promise. The Bible holds out the promise that if we do right, our children will grow up in the land we grow and we will have enough to eat and we will have safe borders. And that promise was manifestly not fulfilled, right? You can see, you know, in the rabbinic memory, right, the first temple was destroyed, they say, because the Jews were breaking those, that covenant. The second temple was destroyed because of senseless hatred. That's not in Deuteronomy. Not at all. You're right. The implication is the Jews were doing everything we were supposed to do. And yet, and this is where the sort of God was absent. And there's a kind of compression of 2,000 plus years of history into God's absence and the nations of the world saying to the Jews, this isn't working. You have this dream of redemption. You have this dream of whether it's a messianic peace, which kind of grows up in, you know, in Isaiah and later, or, you know, just a comfortable, secure existence for the Jewish people. Like it's not happening. And you could be generals, you could be, you know, partners in law firms, the kinds of things that used to be inaccessible to Jews. Join us. And the rabbis tell this, Rabbi Yochanan telling this, that in those kinds of moments, there's a real heartbreak. There's a real despair on the part of Jews. It's a thread of Jewish history and Jewish life. And we go back into our synagogues, into our houses of study, and we open up the Torah, and we read the blessings that God promised us in Leviticus and elsewhere, and are comforted. And after a very long time, God comes back, whether this is something like 1948 or not, is an interesting question in the application of this text. And the first thing God will say to us is, I can't believe you waited for me. It is 1948. It is 1948. Say why you think it's 48. Well, I mean, your description of Jewish history is exactly right, is that we lost the second temple because of senseless hatred. It never says that in the text. And Moses projects 
and predicts and prophecies a lot of things in the text with striking accuracy. But senseless hatred wasn't one of them. It was probably just the reason that we gave for why the Second Temple was destroyed in 2,000 years. The length of that amount of time is almost, it's, it's staggering. 2,000 years. We come back in 1948, despite every reason to have given up, both from people who are persecuting us and people who are trying to assimilate us. And yet we don't do it because we have the Torah, which is what I believe the German poet Hein called the portable homeland of the Jews. The little asterisk here that I think there's a kind of little excavating of the text that I want to do, because the first thing about this text, which is just remarkable, I actually don't, there are other texts like it, but there's none quite, quite like this one, is this text is in a profound sense, atheistic. And I mean that in a, in a specific sense, the character of the woman in the story, the character of the Jews through most of Jewish history, when the nations say, the Torah that you have is incompatible with the world that we live in, right? The evidence of human history and human experience did not point to a loving, benevolent God who's period, much less maybe one who's engaged with the Jewish people. The woman in the story, the Jewish people in history do not have a counter argument. The thing that they fall back on is not a rational discourse. And it's not even something that they can explain to other people. It's a deeply held, we might call childish or irrational hope or insistence, a stubbornness. How about faith? Well, what do you mean by the word faith? Well, faith is in both cases, in the case of the woman whose husband leaves her. And as we discussed before, there's no technology, there's no communication. In fact, in ancient times, the definition of insanity was thinking you could hear people who weren't next to you. Yet she persists in thinking he's coming back, as does Penelope. And so do we, for 2,000 years, persist in thinking that there's going to be a a return of the exiles to the land of Israel in a nation state, which was an insane prediction. I mean, why don't you talk about, you know, in that talk you gave at at Hadar on miracles? I mean, you know, you, you referenced two of the towering intellects from the early 20th century who said the idea that Hebrew will be a spoken language again is just completely fanciful and utterly ridiculous. And then someone else said the exact same thing about the rebirth of the Jewish state. And these were two of the great scholars of the time. I believe they were both Jewish. They both would have wanted the rebirth of Hebrew and of the Jewish state, presumably. And this was in the generation where it happened. It was thought to be ridiculous. Just to strengthen your point, and this is, you know, I learned of these facts from the great professor of modern Jewish thought, Aviezer Rabitsky, who was delivering this lecture in Hebrew to the great delight of the crowd, right? As they were reading these sources saying the rebirth of Hebrew is impossible, people are laughing. And as the laughter subsides, Ravitsky said, and this is, this is why he's such a great mind, that you have to realize that in 1911, the conclusion that Hebrew would not be revived was correct. What's the point of studying historical linguistics if you don't learn certain basic laws, like languages don't go back? That was a true fact in 1911. And it bears repeating that the people who said, I believe it was Rabbi Simon Bernfeld or something in Theodore Noakley, the two of the great authorities, they were anything but anti-Semitic. They were anything but anti-Zionist. They were scientists and they were rational. And their projections, given all the evidence in front of them, were exactly right. Nobody could have made a different projection that there would be a rebirth of Hebrew. There was one crazy guy, Ben Yehuda. Nowadays, we would call it child abuse because he had a son, the only language that he was allowing his son to speak was Hebrew, and nobody else in the world spoke Hebrew. That would not be permitted these days. And it's not unlike the woman who's alone and isolated in this story, right? Reading in a linguistic practice of reading the Torah, which cuts her off from everyone else. That's right. All the evidence is that her husband's not coming back. I do want to say,
say you have given a kind of faithful or hopeful or future-oriented picture of this woman. She believes that he's coming back and there's a kind of future date that's the kind of justification or purpose of all of her waiting and suffering. I do want to hold out one other possibility, which is she is simply committed to her love of him and to living with him even in his absence, right? The only way that she can keep him present in her life is by preserving the absence that he left. And that's a choice she makes without any real expectation that in her life or in the time span they'll be of children together is going to be fulfilled. A hopeless romantic, you would describe her. And the parallel here is uh, Jay-Z Smith, who was a professor, great professor of religion at Chicago, has this incredible article about bear hunting rituals in Siberia. It's amazing article. It's called The Bear Facts of Ritual. And he makes this argument that bear hunting rituals, schematically organized, lay out a dream, a fantasy picture of what a bear hunt would be. Completely unrealistic. You know, you read a poem to the bear and the bear, you know, lays down and allows you to slaughter it or defeat it in hand-to-hand combat with no poison, no firearms, no tricks. And it turns out the people who are doing these rituals use poison and firearms and tricks and don't read declarations to the bear. There's something in these people's kind of constitution where they want to be able to hold the nobility of this creature and the dream that one day they could meet the caloric needs of their families without resorting to low-down, dirty tricks. But if they lived in the normal world, they would never believe that. They would, they would say, oh, that's childish. You know, this is how it is. It's real politic. We're realists. We just got to kill those bears however we can. And the purpose of the ritual is to hold out a counterfactual space. That's the world, as we dream of it being, that we're afraid of losing our ability to hope in. And so the rituals are powerful and necessary and vital, not despite the fact that they don't match our reality, but precisely because the fact they don't match our reality and don't quite even match any reality that we can bring ourselves to believe in. So how do you explain the Jewish commitment to Israel? And we prayed for Jerusalem every day for 2000 years when all of the evidence was that it would never be reconstituted in any form whatsoever, just like all the evidence for the woman in your story was that her husband was gone. Was he dead? Did he leave her? Who knows? The only thing we know is that he's gone and he's not coming back. Yet, as you point out, she loves him in his absence. She loved him in his presence. She loved him in his absence. And you're right. It does sound like a love song. So I think the word that you used, prayer, is the key word. And I'm going to have to unpack a few stages to get here, okay? So the primary religious institution it has is sacrifice, which is really unintuitive to most 21st century human beings. And the key to getting into sacrifice, I think, I'm going to use a word that might seem sacrilegious to you, is that sacrifice is a game. And what I mean by that, right, a game is when you set up a certain space, a baseball diamond, say, I'll tell you in a minute why I picked that, and there's a certain time, and when we step in, we have certain roles, and there are certain rules for success, and the rest of the world ideally is kind of hermetically sealed from that game. This is why sports betting is so dangerous, right? Because then it just becomes work, right? That there needs to be a, a splendid isolation. So Bart Giamatti, who's the president of Yale and the commissioner of Major League Baseball, has a beautiful set of essays on baseball. And he has this one where he says, the reason that games matter is because every game that matters encapsulates a fundamental human dream. It says baseball, it's the dream that will be able to leave home 
and then return later celebrated for what we accomplished in the world. That's the dream that's enacted, you know, five or six players in a medium scoring game get to do that. And we all participate. And that's why the celebration of the rest of their team of fans is so central. And everyone's trying to get you out along the way. He makes the point. And exactly. So some of us, we don't even get to leave home. We just get stuck there. Most of us, maybe. Then some of us make it out, but, you know, we get caught out. It doesn't work out. But then a few of us, we get home or we help someone else get home. And that's an incredible, that's our dream. We didn't even realize it was our dream. It's an incredible piece of interpretation to read baseball that way. So first of all, the, the way that we know that sacrifices in Leviticus are a game, it's incredible. Going back to what you said about the you know reward and punishment that Moses lays out, Leviticus is full of reward and punishment, right? If you don't keep the sabbatical years, the land will vomit you out. And it's full of sacrifices, the grain offerings and the peace offerings and the purification offerings. What's totally remarkable is that those two threads of reward and punishment on the one hand and sacrifice on the other are completely distinct. There is no reward and punishment for offering sacrifices in Leviticus. For individuals there is, but not for the communal ones. It's actually a striking, and that's why they're games, right? There's a little sphere of the temple, and what happens in there is kind of the purpose of all creation captures what's greatest and highest in human life, touching the divine, but it doesn't directly lead to the sun rising the next day, crop fertility, et cetera. Other things are responsible for that. And the, the myth, if baseball is about leaving home and returning, the dream that sacrifices capture is that we could carve out a small corner of the world where only the right creatures die at the right times, in the right ways, and for the right reasons. And if we can do that in the temple, maybe we can hold out a hope that one day, against all reason of warfare and sickness and genetic mutations, that human life could become that way, we can at least not lose our ability to keep imagining and dreaming of that. So the rabbis say, when the rabbis say that prayer is like sacrifice, which is what they say, it's their kind of grounding metaphor, they don't just mean that there's a lot of rules. It's like you don't understand Major League Baseball by reading the rule book. And you don't understand sacrifice by reading Leviticus. They mean that it's about carving out a little world where we pry our hearts back open again against the vice pressure of the world that's trying to close them. And that's what Jews were doing when they were praying for Jerusalem and for resurrection and being reunited with their loved ones after death, and for deliverance from their enemies, and for a world in which God would uphold all the fallen and release all the captives, right? Those weren't like a political agenda that they expected to enact, even though I think they worked hard towards all those things as we do and ought to. They were an attempt to say, these are all the kinds of things that grown-ups give up hope on, and we're not going to do that, and it's so important that we not do it that we're going to actually organize our communal religious lives around the practice of declaring together that we know that the world can be different and better. Even if we don't know how we can get there and we can't really even imagine it, we're just going to hold steadfast to that, like the woman in the story. So is the lesson or one of the lessons from both the story that you told and the story of the Jewish people, the principled rejection of conventional understanding of what's realistic and of what's reality in favor of Jewish hope? So no. So I think you need to accept what's realistic and what's possible the way the scientists do, the historical scientists, the empirical scientists. And this realm of fantasy that I'm describing only starts where our cognitive ability to believe ends. Well, but imagine a conversation between um, the rabbi and the professor who said that in the early 20th century, Israel wasn't possible. And the fact that anybody would be speaking Hebrew is impossible, which is what they both said. What would Ben Yehuda, who at the same time was making his son 
the first native Hebrew speaker in 2000 years, what would he have said to them? Maybe they did have a conversation. They were actually contemporaries. There's no evidence they did, but it's conceivable. Exactly. So this is a very complex question. I, maybe we'll come back and we'll do this on the sermon, but I think uh, Haim Hanziz is kind of about this because the question, I just want to, I don't want to go into this in great depth, but the, I think the kind of the fundamental question is whether to think of Zionism as a fulfillment of this kind of thinking that I'm describing or actually a profound rejection of it. You know, Ben Yehuda might have said, I'm not going to pray for Jerusalem. Explain both and make the case for one. Okay. So the, the argument for the fulfillment of this, you know, a kind of a continuity from religious life of 2,000 years to Zionism is, yeah, Jews have always cared deeply about returning to the land, sovereignty, all the dreams of Deuteronomy. And we finally found a little window in historical time when the forces lined up where we could make it happen. But it is, you know, it's in the prayer books and we believe we're a religion of action. And so we did it. We found a way to do it. That's the argument for. The argument against starts off with the observation that circa 1900, almost all religious Jews are anti-Zionists. And almost all secular Jews are too, right? Almost all Jews are in early 1900s. Almost all religious Jews are anti-Zionists and almost all Zionists are secular. Like the one thing the secular Zionists and the religious anti-Zionists can agree on is that rabbinic Judaism, like the story I told you from Rabbi Yochanan, is non or anti-Zionist, right? That's kind of, they, they both agree on that. And there's a small number, you know, there's, there's Rav Cook and Rav Herzog and, you know, a whole school of, of people. On the secular side, there's Herzl. Yes, there are some, but by and large, there is absolutely no consensus for Zionism among Jews in the early 20th century. And there's a sense that it's a, a secular, it's a rejection of that diasporic waiting and reading and suffering and for action and manliness and self-determination, all these things. So, But it's not even like the secular Jews were all pounding the table for Zionism. They weren't. It, it was very few people were deeply in, involved in the cause in the early 20th century. Right. So these are very schematic categories. I don't want us to go too deep into the history of Zionist because it's really not my area, but I do want to go back to one thing about prayer, which is really critical, and go back to a biblical passage. We mostly haven't talked about the Bible. So there's the second use of the word palal, which is the Hebrew root of tefillah. First one is Abraham praying for Sodom and Gomorrah. The second is when Jacob is reunited with Joseph in Egypt. And he says, which Rashi glosses is, Jacob says, I didn't ever dream that I would see your face again to his son. I mean, we're talking about someone's gone and you don't know whether they've died. This is the paradigm. And then Rashi glosses is, my mind didn't allow me to believe that it was possible that I would see you. If you just believe, oh, everything's possible, the world's a complicated place. The kind of tefillah I'm describing, the kind of prayer I'm describing is actually doesn't happen for you. It's only when you believe that something is by everything you know about the world not going to happen. And yet, despite that, you say, I still insist on dreaming of it. So that's the second interpretation. So I don't know if it totally maps onto the, to the Zionist piece. I mean, it, I think it could go either way. I think there's a lot of other intersecting questions about, you know, nationalism and identity and authority. And So is that the function of prayer? Is the function of prayer the ability to, against all odds, make something that's rationally impossible possible and to give it a room for hope? I don't know about the first part, about whether it makes the rationally impossible possible, but I do know that what it does is it, or can do, is it allows us to keep hoping in things we might have otherwise left along the way. 
And another way that I would describe this, to go kind of the religious undertones of this text, is that normally we think that kind of religion is in the God business. And, and what I mean by that is that religious institutions, Jewish, Christian, otherwise, are going to be more popular and more plausible and more compelling if we convince people that God is really here. You know, whether it's in sunsets or whether it's in a newborn baby's cry or whether it's in the human capacity for justice and repentance. But somewhere there's going to be some evidence of God in the world, and that's going to be an argument for doing religious stuff, affiliating with religious communities, studying religious texts, etc. The basic premise of this text, which is so amazing, is that religious institutions only take on their meaning in the context of the total absence of God's presence. Right? If God were around and you could access God all the time, you wouldn't need a synagogue. The synagogue is there because the world that it discloses to you is so radically in tension with, it's like the rest of the world being black and white and the synagogue being this one little area where you can see color. If the rest of the world turned into color, you wouldn't need the colored television set anymore. So that, I think, really shifts the picture of what kind of, of metaphysics, what kind of theology is like friendly to religion. Right. And what do you conclude? I'll conclude this way. The reason that this text is important to me and the reason it's been so important for the last number of years since I first came across it is that it goes beyond something that Judaism is often credited for, rightly, to something more exciting. The thing that Judaism is often credited for, right, Judaism doesn't have dogmas. If you read the Talmud long enough, you'll find any position. And that's true. And then that gets to the place of, oh, it's okay to have doubts about God. It's okay not to be able to believe in God the way you believe in gravity or evolution. And I know you're in a different place with that, which I'd love to hear more about. But this text does something stronger. It says, actually, there's a kind of religious life which has a solid Jewish pedigree, which is a picture of devoted prayer and Torah study, which only gets off the ground. It takes as a principle of its faith the kind of deep, haunting doubt of the wife not knowing whether her husband will ever return. Unless you have that kind of doubt, you can't have the kind of religious life that's described in this text. And I totally agree. And I think it gets right to the nature of prayer because if everything we prayed for came true, God would be an ATM machine and there would be no need for faith. You don't need to have faith in the ATM machine. Right, and prayer would just be a branch of science and medicine. You don't need to have faith when you know for sure that what you want is going to happen. You have science, you have something else, but faith has to exist in the absence of your desires being fulfilled, even when they're deserved. I just want to drop the way that you're using faith, which is very, very powerful, is very different than the way people often talk about belief. Kind of, you know, I, I believe that X, Y, and Z and facts fall in there. The way you're using faith is sits in some ways like 90 degrees, 180 degrees to that. And it's just a really interesting way. And I wanted to raise that up because I think it's a great use of the term. Jason, thank you for such a fascinating discussion about this passage, which I never would have seen without you, to put it mildly. Uh, incredible. The, the wisdom in our tradition is boundless. And thank you for surfacing this piece of eternal wisdom. Now, the um, concluding question always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible or its aligned text commentaries, to um, another text, which is entirely different, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says on the first page, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And uh, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Jason, in your years as a uh, chaplain at Yale University, working with, studying with, teaching and counseling some of the brightest young people in, in our country, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? 
Oh my, I just, I want to savor that question. I love it. The first one is uh, something I read from Parker Palmer, the great Quaker educator, but I didn't know really it was true until doing years and years of education. Palmer says the human soul is like a great wild animal. It's very, very powerful and beautiful, but very shy. And sometimes one has to sit in its presence, not even knowing exactly where it is for hours silently to allow it to come out and be seen. And that I found to be profoundly true that the- How do you see that among students? You see it in that people, I mean, not dissimilar to the priest taking confession, you know, people look, I don't want to say predictable, um, but, you know, there are certain types and personas on the outside. They're the people who are into politics, the people who are into tech and the old money and the new money and the people not for money and the people who are, you know, the leftists who go to this coffee shop, et cetera, and the Bill Buckley people. And that's fine. That's like not interesting. You just sort them, right? There, and there's a, you know, the proportions shift year to year. But then when you sit with someone, over hours, and those hours, not just, you know, one six-hour conversation, but hours, like, slowly attending to how they emerge when there's a lot of silence and stillness around them, something of a different order of being emerges, which is a thing of, of beauty, which is their soul kind of coming into itself, coming into view. What a beautiful insight. And I think one of the aspects of your insight is it's not an efficient process. It takes time. And, and that's why even in parenting, like the whole notion of quality time never made any sense to me as a parent, because it's like your child's going to have that burst of insight. His or her soul is going to announce itself at the least predictable moments. It's, if you say, I, I got 40 minutes for you, it's not going to come out. It, it's only in the long periods of time when they're ready, not when you're ready. And, and you're saying that's the same thing basically with, with students and their rabbi. It's the same thing. Yeah, I think you're making me think our, we have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and I forget what interaction they had just had that had kind of gone. Something you know, delightful and unexpected had happened to my six-year-old, turned to my wife and said, your hard work as a mother is finally starting to pay off. <laughs> your six-year-old said that? Yeah. Who knew that he was keeping tabs? And that's how we think about it. It's not like, oh, 40 minutes, 40 minutes, 40 minutes, check. It's like something over the course of hours and years. So that's the first thing I would say is, a real, you know, a faith, as you described, but also a belief in a more kind of quasi-scientific way in that methodology. The second one I'll share is that there's a way of knowing people that comes across only from being with them, being close to them, not just being physically present, being close to them, you know, as they go through years and years of their lives. So I'm thinking of, uh, you know, some people who were on my interview committee when I came here and then I knew as students. And now I've seen them, you know, become young parents and been with them through that process. And to realize how certain conversations with them now about choices they're making with the, you know, healthcare for their baby, which are not simple, we couldn't have had, I couldn't have understood what they were saying. I wouldn't have known what questions to ask if I hadn't known them as students. Um, in a totally different capacity, we wouldn't have built that together. And that's something that's a tremendous gift. And I feel structurally, we don't have many institutions other than synagogues and churches that are set up to facilitate those. That's such a profound point, particularly because it can only be mediated through an institution at scale. I mean, the odds of just meeting someone at random and developing that relationship, it's possible, but it's not dependable. Exactly. And, you know, and I feel this with couples that I did, you know, I never really met, but they found me and I did a wedding and that was great. But it's orders of magnitude less than what it was like to know someone before they met their partner 
you know, see that relationship develop, meet their parents at graduation, see them go through deciding whether to move to the same city or not. And then, you know, that's just something, it's a, it's a completely different thing. So I don't even want to use numerical comparisons. But it's, it's also one of the profound functions of the synagogue that is very seldom discussed. When you look at a synagogue as, oh, that's a place where you go to get bar mitzvah and then married, and then when someone dies, you call the rabbi, you're not going to get any of the profound relationships that you describe and that one needs out of that. You know, one of the major trends of 20th and 21st century American life is how what were previously kind of age vertically integrated, you know, families, neighborhoods, guilds become third grade and the neighborhood where you live because the elementary school is good and, you know, the golf club that people go to and they're middle managers and these age striations become very narrow and you lose all of that. And so the extent that religious institutions don't follow suit, it puts us in some tension. Right. It's the difference between a consumer and a relationship. You know, I I go there to consume my bar mitzvah. I go there to consume my golf. Versus it's just, it's not a bait to feel where you go to prayer. Prayer It's a bait Knesset where you go to gather. And when do you go to gather? All the time. You know, I'm going to share a story just that it's so delightful. We were at, this was the synagogue we were part of when we lived in. We were in a lovely, lovely synagogue. And there was a service that was happening. You know, it wasn't the most inspiring service I've ever been to this particular Shabbat morning. And I was like, why are we here? Like that, you know, that, that kind of sense that I had described of the synagogue being the place where you open up the heart of a heartless world wasn't happening for me. My wife was about, I don't know, maybe eight months pregnant with our first child at this point. And there's this ancient woman who sat in the row in front of us. And she was wearing her best outfit. That way. She had this incredible kind of technicolor cane and a matching technicolor jacket that she would wear sometimes. She had them. And she turns around, looks my wife square in the eye during tour reading or something. And she's like, I had a dream last night about your baby. And I was like, oh, really? Was it a boy or a girl? And the woman leans in and says, do you really want to find out? And my wife's like, yeah, it's a boy. It's a lovely baby. And he was a boy. So what else do I have that? And how many other, you know, what was I, 31? How many other 31-year-olds in New York City have that? Right. Yeah, beautiful. But she did have a 50% probability. She was right. Exactly. So I don't want to, exactly. I'm not, I'm, we didn't take stock picks from her in the future, but, <laughs> but it makes the story all the better. And just the last thing I want to say, which I've learned about people, which has been really interesting. And I want to give a lot of appreciation to Hadar, where I taught before, is the way that we're really profoundly integrated, kind of emotional and psychic on the one hand and intellectual beings on the other. Like I, for years at Hadar, you know, my main work was, you know, the certain kind of intellectual productivity of these kinds of ideas we've been talking about. And most of those projects that were worth anything grew out of pastoral, emotional conversations with students. Give me a sense like, oh, there's something here. What are the ideas that give language to that? Who's, who's someone in our tradition who's thought and felt that before? Whose voice I can find that I didn't know to look for? And what I've experienced more here over the last two years is the way that certain ideas developed at Hadar are extremely comforting to people in hard situations. And I I can go into some details about that, but that's just something that the profound integration of intellectual and emotional, personal, spiritual life, when they're both working at their best, is something that I just keep being wondering at and and also reflecting. You described, you know, institutions not being set up that way. It's also not how either most of our intellectual institutions or most of our spiritual institutions are set up. But it is the function of the intellectual endeavor is, is so that we can apply it to help others and to help ourselves. In other words, if you couldn't use what you learned in study at Hadar to help the students at Yale, how worthwhile would, would it be what you learned in study at Hadar? Exactly. It's a litmus test, not of did I get 100 on the test, but when I, can I 
distill this and translate it in a way that touches someone's heart. The Torah is our great guidebook. It's not a history book or a cookbook or a law book. It's a guidebook. Yes. Well, Jason, thank you so much for such a fascinating discussion. Your writing is spectacular. And, and now I, I can see why through this conversation on the rabbi's husband. So thank you. Mark, it's been a delight to be a conversation partner of yours to learn with and from you and really an honor to be part of this incredible project you're curating. And I just want to thank you for involving me and thank you for what you're putting out into the world because we need so much more of it. Oh, well, thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.